So you always want to be prepared to... To set goals. To be really disruptive. Diversity is fundamental. It is just trusting those super strengths. To recover from those failures and, and learn from them. Humility looks like the softest word, but it's kind of the hardest. We ourselves are in beta mode. Life goes on. Sporting Edge, inside the mind of champions. Welcome to the Inside the Mind of Champions podcast. My name is Jeremy Snape. I'm a former England cricketer with a master's degree in sports psychology. Since retiring, I've been fortunate to work with and interview some of the world's most successful thinkers and performers. And I'm passionate about translating their habits and routines into practical strategies to help you become more successful. In each episode, I'll be dissecting a common performance challenge to help you improve your mindset, your leadership and your team performance. To me, our mindset is the next frontier. So let's find out why. Hello and welcome to episode 20 of Inside the Mind of Champions. I can't believe we've done 20 episodes. How time flies when you're in a global pandemic. Well, I hope this finds you well. The clocks have just gone back in the UK, so it's a time for us to embrace those dark nights. I was actually reading an article at the weekend about this Scandinavian practice or philosophy of Huggy. Uh, they welcome the darkness by creating this cosy nest with a log fire, a book, a coffee and a blanket. So that sounds great to me. And I'm sure we've got some adrenaline junkies who are currently running up a snowy mountain as they listen to this. But if you've got the blanket and some thick socks, that's fine with me. And if you're in the Southern Hemisphere or warmer climes, then we're not really interested in your smugness. Just think of us as you light the barbecue and your late evening sunset tonight. Well, it was great to see so many positive messages from the last episode with Baroness Sue Campbell. Her calm, common sense leadership is just what the world needs in the middle of all this chaos. Chris Armstrong on LinkedIn spoke about the framework we discussed for managing conflict being a great highlight for him. And we also had notes from Hannah, Irene, Laurie, Pete and Niels, all talking about what an inspirational leader Sue Campbell is, especially powerfully when it was some of the people who'd worked alongside her. So that was great to see. Thanks very much for getting in touch with that. Great to see that we've had some more five star ratings for the show on Apple with massive thanks to Richard Musgrove, who said, thanks for giving me lots of clarity through this difficult period. And we also had MB72 Snapper. This is awesome, giving everyone the tools to rise to the challenge. So you're in South Africa. So how's it? Good to uh, see that you're listening down in South Africa. And we also got a note from Ross Trevelyan, who said that in my role in learning and development, see a wide range of content, but I rarely see content which is so pragmatic and practical. So this is an excellent podcast. So thanks so much, Ross, for your note and everyone else who took that extra 30 seconds to write those recommendations and give a five-star review. That's absolutely brilliant. I really feel passionately about that practical element. I sat in a pre-season for 20 years in a row, pretty much, and, and all the psychologists came in and, and told us these inspirational quotes and, and sort of ideas and lots of management speak. But actually, when we start getting into the practical strategies, that's when it really starts to make a difference. So that's something I'm really 
passionate to try and drill down into. And we also see it in the corporate world where a leader will say, you know, our new strategy is to be more agile or something like that. But people don't actually know what it means. And, and you know, do you want us just to come in to work and, and do different tasks every day or every hour? Or have I just got to change my Zoom background? Is that being agile? It's difficult to get, you know, a sense for for what you actually mean. So I'm I'm from Stoke originally. I'm very practical and, and I think that's something I'm really striving to to help you to develop from these inspirational insights. So today's topic is about six star decision making and I've picked some really thought provoking insights from our digital library that you can reflect on. But I also hope that you can act on them. Here's a taste of what's to come. A lot of the situations we find ourselves in, particularly in sports, we're called upon to act so quickly that that model of cognitive processing would leave us just constantly behind. But the secret is taking all the data that you have and simplifying it into a coherent and simplistic strategy for each individual player. The literature in my field actually suggests that there might be other ways of making decisions that are easier and less time consuming and can still lead to relatively good options. So once you've made that big decision, the question is, is it okay to change your mind? I welcome being challenged. It might not feel like that. Uh, there will come a point where you see my eyes will change and I will tell you that we've now passed a point of discussion. Thank you very much. You have to make a decision and I don't believe you judge by your mistakes. You judge by making a decision. So the reason I've picked this topic this week is because I think a lot of people are experiencing change and are sitting waiting for something to happen. And that's all fine if it's a conscious decision, but not knowing how long this is going to go on for is really, really difficult. So we've got to remain proactive and retain that feeling that we're in control of our own destiny. The problem is that to move forward, we need to make decisions and we often overplay the risk of decisions as if they're going to set us back to a position that we just can't recover from. So we just don't make them. We procrastinate. So then time passes by along with the opportunity to make the decision. And then we get really pissed off with ourselves because we weren't bold enough and courageous enough to make a move. And then we focus on that negative voice so much that, you know, we should have made a decision and actually, we've missed another opportunity to make a decision that was in front of us. So I think we've got to be very careful about how we manage our mindset and how we manage our decisions in the coming months, because they definitely give us a chance to change our reality and start moving forward. And I was thinking the other day about what might be most useful. And we're all in so many different situations and different contexts. We've got teachers, we've got entrepreneurs, we've got executives, we've got senior execs, we've got coaches. So I thought I'd try and create something around the one thing that we all share, which is this uncertain few months ahead. So let's use this time while you're relaxing or you're walking the dog or you're out running to find a way through this infuriating situation and to get the courage and the clarity to make some decisions. Hopefully by the time you get home or by the time you finish that coffee or by the time you've moved the blanket, if you're doing the Scandinavian style, you could be fired up to make this decision that you've been sitting on for a while. It's hard to estimate how many decisions we make in a day, but some psychologists say it's around 70, while others estimate that we've got more instinctive and subconscious decisions of up to 30,000 a day. So clearly, we've got to get a sense for what are the decisions that are taking our 
cognitive energy, some of them like breathing and blinking, a handle at subconscious level. But we need this executive part of our brain or neocortex to be available as much as possible to make sure that we are you know, investing in these big decisions that have got more uh, importance in our lives. So when we've grappled with all those different decisions, there are a number of forces that can get in the way. Fear of failure is a big one. Um, lack of information is another. You know, we don't, we don't feel confident in our decision making or maybe even too much information. I think choices, you know, when we get overloaded with choice, I just picture myself trying to buy jeans in a shop with all the different colors and sizes and different cuts and it's absolute mayhem so there's probably 4,000 options to choose from so I end up just walking out and not making a decision at all but also we can lack courage in ourselves and lack that trust in ourselves we can have disagreement in a group maybe that's stopping us from making a decision we can get too emotional or not think logically enough and maybe it's something that's clashing with our values. So we've got conflict. We, we know the right thing to do, but that's not what the environment is making us sort of move towards. Well, maybe there's just not enough time and the pressure's building up. So there's lots of things that can get in the way from making good decisions. And that last one is, is a fascinating place to start, really, because the time element is what separates the good from the great. I think in elite sport, we see people perform and make decisions and move so quickly it's like they've read the game ahead of time so something must be happening there and I think the great entrepreneurs the great executives the great sports stars are able to make these decisions very quickly now you know I had a chance to test myself against some of the best players in the world and and the margins are so small you know a fraction of a second here or a fraction of an inch there so players are always looking for that edge and the first of the six insights today comes from John Coates, who studied a PhD in neurobiology. He's an expert in decision making. He was, first of all, a, a trader in New York on Wall Street. And his research now in sport and with traders is fascinating. I read his book called The Hour Between Dog and Wolf. And it's like a forensic study of decision making on the trading floor, given the emotions and fears and hubris of these particular traders. And in this part of our interview with John, he explains the speed of decisions and how our brains respond when things get too fast. We have a tendency to think that our decisions are conscious and in some sense discursive. In other words, we take in information, we think about what we want to do, and then we issue commands to our, our, our motor system. The trouble with that model is that it's way too slow. A lot of the situations we find ourselves in, particularly in sports, we're called upon to act so quickly that that model of cognitive processing would leave us just constantly behind. We would always be like two steps behind the game. So a lot of the processing that takes place in our brain is pre-conscious. Um, to give you an example, uh, in some sports, for example, cricket, some of the close infielders, um, baseball, maybe the pitcher and batter, or in football, you know, penalty kick. These projectiles are coming in faster than we can process, and yet we're reacting to these projectiles before, in some sense, we're even conscious of where they're going. I mean, our visual system is, is remarkably slow. 
think it takes approximately 100 milliseconds for an image, when it hits our retina, to be brought to the level of consciousness. 100 milliseconds. But in a lot of these situations, you know, the projectile, like a cricket ball, a baseball, or a, 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 a football, can be approaching us in, you know, 50 milliseconds or even less, and yet we can react. So we have to get over this idea that, that a lot of our, or that our central decision-making process is conscious and discursive like that. It's just sort of a bit of an illusion that, that that's what's going on when we're reacting, particularly in high-pressure situations. So I've been in a position where I'm facing one of the fastest bowlers in the world. I'm 22 yards away, and now most of the time I was okay. There were some days when I was absolutely shitting myself, and, and that decision was very conscious. But most of the time I could react and play the right shot at the right time. So how do batsmen do that in cricket? Well, our decision-making doesn't start at the point where the ball leaves the bowler's hand, which is what most people think. It starts way before that. This is where the expert picks up a series of subtle cues that the novice doesn't even know exist. For example, the height of their knees as they run in, the grip on the ball, their front shoulder as they jump into their action. These split-second signals are fed into the elite batsman's brain and start to preload the decision-making process even before the ball has been released. An illustration of this came in my testimonial year. I had an event at Lord's and we took a group of corporate execs into the nets for a coaching session. I asked a few celebrity friends to come along and help me on the day. And we had Devon Malcolm, the former England fast bowler, and also Tim Henman, the famous tennis player. I was batting and Devon was slinging down these 80 mile an hour thunderbolts and the crowd were enjoying seeing the contest from really close up. I'd played with Devon for a long time and that was okay because I was used to it. But then Tim Henman was watching at the sides and said he wanted to have a go. So instead of bowling, he picked up his tennis racket and started serving some tennis balls at me from the same 22 yards length of the cricket pitch. Now I think all three balls that he served at me hit me straight on the badge of my helmet. I didn't even move. I couldn't pick up the trajectory or the pace of those deliveries. It wasn't necessarily any faster, but I was a complete novice at facing a delivery from that height, that angle and from a racket. So I had no experience of the triggers that were getting made before the decision was needed. So I just didn't make one. And that's why I got hit on the head. So this story isn't meant to say I was an amazing batsman against fast bowling or that I'm crap at tennis, but it shows that it's not the speed that's the issue. It's our experience and the context. Our ability to detect patterns in our environment is the critical part of decision making. If I came and spent the day in your office in finance, healthcare or football, I'd really struggle to see the details which give you a sense for what decision to make. If you're experienced in any field, you'll have amassed a database of experiences that are in your subconscious and they fire when those priming signals start to give you a head start on your decision making. That's what you have as an expert, that ability to make more correct decisions faster than a novice. So it's our ability to see these patterns which help us to preload our decision making. To see this kind of preloading in action, you only have to think back to watching people who've heard a really loud bang and they duck and cover their heads as if something's going to fall from the sky. 
or when a owner of a dog goes to throw the ball but fakes the throw and holds on to the ball the dog still scampers away for the vast amount of times that the owner has raised their arm with the ball in hand they've let go of it every time so the dog starts to run before the ball is released because it's so used to the pattern so when we don't have time to think we still make these decisions but we're basing it on our past experiences and that instinct can either be great or it can lead us to some kind of biased decision. Remember back in episode 11, Professor Bina Candola told us about in that breaking bias episode about our bias kicks in most when we're short on time, stressed or under pressure. So it's important that we reflect on our decision making from the past and also think about how we can broaden our research base if you like or the people that help us to make decisions because the more diversity and variations we have from different perspectives before we make those decisions will actually build the muscles and build those instincts to be sharper and less biased in the future so as you saw from my uh, cricketing example that I'd become an expert with a narrow field of decision making against bowlers but when I was asked a broader question from left field or let's say centre court from Tim Henman, I had no answer. So that idea of, of course, we can't do it all the time with every decision, but reading more widely, learning more widely, considering different perspectives allows us to have that you know, greater flexibility in our thinking that we can rely on to make better quality decisions when time is short. Another way to strengthen our decision making is to make it a team sport or at least bring other people in to check our logic and to see if we're being irrational or overly emotional or biased. It takes quite a single minded person to make decisions in isolation without taking input from others, especially if our decision is going to affect other people. So I think you need to follow your gut instinct, but it's also good to test your opinion with other people from a different perspective. For alpha leaders, it's easy to give people the opportunity to challenge your decision, but are you really open to it? Our second insight is from Major General Andrew Sharp, who had an incredible 34-year career in the British Army, including nine operational tours, and he also led the UK Chief of Defence Staff Strategic Advisory Panel. I had the privilege of designing and delivering some of the senior leadership events at Sandhurst Military College each year, and Major General Sharp is a fascinating person to listen to. In this part of his interview with Sporting Edge, he explains that as a confident leader at the top of the chain of command, you need to know when to ask for input and when to commit and move forward with your decision. But if you're big, with a loud voice, um, and capable of being reasonably robust in the way that you talk to people, and uh, you're in an organisation that is hierarchical, that carries rank, and you wear it on your shoulders so everybody's constantly conscious of it. It's very easy um, to assume that everybody is comfortable with challenging you and to behave in a way that makes challenging you very, very difficult. And um, it, it took me quite a long time to realise that despite the fact that I thought that I was very comfortable with being challenged, um, the people that I was leading didn't feel that I was comfortable 
with being challenged. And um, it took somebody to challenge me and take me to one side afterwards and say, you do realise that you can be a steamroller, don't you? <clears throat> For me to think that's grossly unfair, stop and have a think about it and think no, that that's probably perfectly fair. And um, because it would be wrong for me to, change, to try and change exactly who I am, um, the easiest way of dealing with that, which is what I now do whenever I take over anything, is to explain to people how I am and say, I welcome being challenged. It might not feel like that. Uh, there will come a point where you see my eyes will change and I will tell you that we've now passed a point of discussion. Thank you very much. Um, but up until the point where we, um, we reach that point, which hopefully we rarely do, actually, I welcome, despite how I'm behaving, I would welcome a discussion. I welcome being challenged, again, up until the point where we say, OK, now we've decided. And from the point that you've decided, unless somebody has spotted that things are going horribly wrong and feels that you need to be told, uh, actually what you need is, is, is real cohesion, is a common front, is a common purpose, is common belief. And that means if you're asked your opinion, you're either in the team, in which case you share the team's view, or you're not in the team, in which case go and find something else to do. There are so many insights to take from that short video clip. In fact, his whole interview is brilliant. But we know the military can't be a place for sitting round deliberating while the machine guns and machine gun fire rain down on you. Someone needs to take the lead. But as a dominant leader, he needed to be challenged to open up his awareness of what his team perceived, which was that he wasn't open to challenge, even though he actually was. Ensuring people feel that they can contribute to our decisions is important from an engagement perspective, but also to avoid massive errors, our team needs that psychological safety to warn the senior leaders, lead surgeons or army generals that they've spotted something dangerous. If the power gradient is too steep and people fear that contribution, they'll stay quiet and massive errors in decision-making will follow. Equally, if the team decisions are low stakes and everyone is just kicking around their opinions, then the leader needs to bring focus back and get 100% commitment behind the decision. Weaker teams will always prolong this, gossiping and moaning about decisions, but high-performing teams disagree and commit to what the leader sees as best for the team, and their energy shifts from debate to execution. Our third insight into making better decisions is to lean on some kind of evidence. We can often make decisions emotionally, which is fine. Following your heart is good, but it's important to try and get that balance if we can. And sport has led the way in terms of measuring performance and the amount of data pouring off a Formula One car, for example, is mind-boggling. And in football, players have software that tracks their sprint speed, split-second positioning, shots on target, pass accuracy. But we have to be careful that we don't overdose on data and become paralysed. I caught up with Professor Bill Gerrard from Leeds University Business School. Bill's main area of research has been around sports analytics, and he's worked with Billy Bean from the Oakland A's in the legendary Moneyball project. He's worked with Saracens Rugby and a number of Premier League football teams. He stresses why harnessing data in our decision-making is so important, whatever field you're in. 
I think it's a combination of uh, a couple of factors. I think the the ability to collect data um, has has grown exponentially in in recent years, uh, and coupled with that, then the the ability to to process data. And so the the growth in analytics really has come from we've got the data. Can we use that data in a meaningful way to to help improve decision making? To use data appropriately, you have to recognise not only what the data tells you, but importantly, what it doesn't tell you. So you've got to understand the limits to the data. Data, data alone will not give you the best, most effective decision, but it can help improve your decision-making process if you use it appropriately. I believe very, very strongly that effective management, whether it's business, whether it's in, in sport, is about marshalling the available and relevant evidence, being able to deal with the overload that we face of too much data to, to pinpoint what's important, and uh, with the managers working with analysts to, to marshal that, the evidence together uh, in a way that we can make and support as effective decisions as possible. So, uh, yeah, it, it, sport, business, the, the, ultimately coaches and managers share the objective of trying to get the best performance out of the people that they're working with, their facilitators at the end of the day, and they're trying to get the, the members of the organisation to coordinate and perform as best as possible. And data analytics has a massive role to play in that. One sporting leader who got this balance absolutely spot on was Paul McGinley in developing his winning strategy for the 2014 Ryder Cup golf tournament. He had loads of data on the players, how they played, who they might pair up against best, but the key was to make sure that the players themselves weren't cluttered by the data sitting behind these decisions, as he now explains. When we're at our best, um, our minds are very uncluttered, very simple. Um, I wanted to harness that mentality in the Ryder Cup. I didn't want us to have overload of information as individuals and as a captain, as a vice captains. Uh, I wanted simplistic. Um, normally in life, the simple things are, the clearer they are to everybody, the easier they we feel we can carry them out. Data is something that we see more and more use, um, not just in business, but in sport. Um, we had used data at a very low level um, in previous Ryder Cups that I've been involved in. Um, I wanted to bring it into the modern world, this Ryder Cup in, in Glen Eagles, and I wanted to use data, and I saw the importance of data. I watched it and analyzed. We employed a full-time um, data analysis team who followed the players for the two years uh, and also did a detailed analysis of the golf course that we were facing, the exam that we were facing in Glen Eagles. But data is a double-edged sword. Too much data, too much information and you can leave yourself open to paralysis by analysis. So what, the way I, I dealt with it was um, I was going to be the filter for that data. Uh, and I wanted concise four or five points. I wanted all the data assimilated, brought together and then present to me four or five salient points. Based on those points, I would then communicate that in a very simple way to the players. So data for me is all about filtering. Too much data and you can lose sight of the wood for the trees. Um, so it's something to be very coy about, but the secret is taking all the data that you have and simplifying it into a coherent and simplistic strategy. 
for each individual player. I love that idea that Paul was studying for the exam, the tough questions that the Glen Eagles course would throw at the European team was all part of their feeling of confidence and and preparedness was to have the data and the analysis in their pocket. But Paul didn't show off with the amount of data that he'd been able to create. He curated it into three to four key numbers on a dashboard that he could get the players to look at and go out and base their decisions on against their opposition as the tournament unfolded. Data should allow us to become more flexible, not less. So have a think about the two to three key data points that are so important in your decision making at the moment. I'll create another podcast around data specifically, but one thing to think about here is whether you're using lag data or lead data. For example, if somebody's trying to lose weight and they're tracking that on the scales, that's lag data because it's basically the result of what you've been eating and exercising over the last few weeks and months. But if we were to look at lead data in that context, it would be things like the calories in or the calories burnt so that we get a sense for our future weight. So lead data gives us a future focus and that could be really important. So that's why sales teams tend to look beyond just the sales figure from the last quarter and go back into the sales pipeline, look at the number of calls and the activity, maybe the trust pilot score, all those things that are going to actually tell us what we're likely to deliver in the next quarter. So whatever your context, data allows you to have a cold, rational view of the trends as they develop amidst the chaos and pace of a market or across a sports field. So they should always be part of your toolkit for making better decisions. For those of you who've been listening to the last few episodes over the last couple of months, you'll know that myself and the Sporting Edge team have been focused on developing a brand new technology platform for our members club community. Well, I'm thrilled to say that we've just pushed the site live in the last couple of hours and we're currently running the tests on the sign up, the content, the billing, all of these different elements of the functionality in this live domain. So we're not quite ready yet, but it's coming very, very soon because it's actually on its live domain, which is great. And I'm really genuinely excited about it because it gives us a chance to get our content and our high performance strategies to many, many people around the world. We've had hundreds of people register their interest, including international sports coaches, executives from all different sectors, entrepreneurs, teachers and students. So everyone that joins as a founder member in this early phase of our membership club will get special privileges and a special offer price. So you'll have access to a vast library of video insights from all the world-class experts that you've been listening to as part of the podcast. There's over 70 different topics from sleep to strategy, from resilience to diversity or decision-making. And here's a little bit more on how to get involved. During times of uncertainty and pressure, your mindset will be the key to your success. Sporting Edge members have unlimited personal access to hundreds of video insights and performance strategies to accelerate their personal and professional success. This is your chance to get powerful weekly micro-lessons from the world's best thinkers and performers from elite sport. You'll be able to connect with a global network of entrepreneurs, coaches and senior executives on webinars, discussion forums and events. 
Become a Sporting Edge member and get access to the world's best coaches on demand. For more information, visit www.sportingedge.com or email hello at sportingedge.com. There's never been a better time to challenge your thinking and learn new strategies. The content is all bite-sized and available on any platform, so you can watch it at any time, wherever you are and and whatever you need. So I'll be available as your coach as well, and uh, we'll also be joining some inspirational experts to get us through this challenging period. So if you do want to get your mindset, well-being and career in great shape, then register your interest in our members club at sportingedge.com forward slash membership. And I really look forward to welcoming you. The next insight from our library comes from the aptly named Professor Wandi Brain the Brain. Uh, Wandi started her research into behavioural science and decision making in Holland, but in, is now at the University of Southern California. And I caught up with her to ask her advice for people who'd been taking too much time and procrastinating in their decisions. I get a sense that when we have time on our hands, we can drill into every detail of a decision and become so paralysed that we can't move forward. So I was fascinated to hear Wandy's explanation and a new word that can help us all to move forward. People worry about decision-making because it can be difficult to make good decisions. People don't always know what to do. And so a recommendation from research in my field is at least traditionally it has been, that if you want to make good decisions, you should uh, try to maximize. And so maximizing involves looking at all of the available options and then rating uh, the features of each option and then choosing the option that on average has the highest ratings because then you can maximize because you can choose the option that that is the best for you because you, you like that one the best. And uh, the thing is, maximizing is difficult to do, right? Especially if there are a lot of options. So people worry about whether they know how to maximize, whether it's possible to maximize. And the thing is, um, the literature in my field actually suggests that there might be other ways of making decisions that are easier and less time consuming and can still lead to relatively good options. So an alternative way of making decisions is um, what's called satisfying. And so instead of looking at all of the available options, what you would do if you were to satisfy is to basically choose the first option that you come across that is good enough on key attributes. So one that is good enough uh, on the things that you care about. So let's say you're looking to rent an apartment in a new city. Um, If you're maximizing, what you'll do is look at every available apartment and rate it on all of their features. So location, how much you like the kitchen, how much you like the bathroom, and so on. If you're satisfying, you just take the first apartment that's good enough on the things that you really care about. So you would take one that has the, uh, I don't know, no further than however, two, two kilometers from work so that you can walk maybe, or uh, a kitchen of a size that you care about. And so satisfying is a lot easier than maximizing. And uh, research also suggests that satisfying might actually be better if you don't have a lot of time. So under time pressure, you really have to choose different kinds of decision strategies that may um, not always lead to the very best decision, but a decision that is just 
perhaps slightly less, but much faster to make. I think we can all relate to that idea of maximising the quality of our decisions, but satisficing was a new one on me for sure. It follows that rule we hear from innovators and entrepreneurs saying that it's better to have made a decision that was 70% right rather than not making a decision at all because we were waiting for it to be perfect. It's much more about test and learn making these decisions. And we worry so much about making mistakes and feeling the shame and rejection of not looking like we've got everything sorted. But let's be fair, that's absolute bollocks. No one has got it planned and sorted, not even the biggest brains in the world. They're all scratching their heads at the moment as well. So don't let this perfectionism hold you back. We're wasting so much mental and emotional energy. So let's make sure we use Wandy's new technique of satisficing and let's get those two to three key variables on the decision and base our decision on that. Maybe it's price, maybe it's speed, maybe it's quality, but waiting for all these three things to max out to 100% could mean that we miss the opportunity altogether. So let's be satisficers and, and crack on with our next decision. It feels like the insights so far in this episode are giving you a foolproof strategy for decision making. But especially in the current context, I just don't think that's possible. High performance is about getting more decisions right than we get wrong. But in times of uncertainty, we need to trust ourselves that we can recover from any decision that we make. Very few choices in our life are truly life or death. But we are so proud and fearful of making the wrong decision that we just don't make one. And that can be an emotional burden in itself. So the philosophical question is, do you see your life as a set of neat stepping stones, one in front of the other? Or do you see it more like a chaotic game of hopscotch where you have to stop, rebalance, turn, change feet, jump, skip, and then move forward? My personal experience, and certainly looking at the high performers that we've met and interviewed from our research at Sporting Edge, is that none of them have walked a perfect path and they've all made decisions changed their minds, pivoted, adapted and gone again. Sometimes changing your mind is the best thing you can possibly do. So we now hear from the former COO of Morgan Stanley Europe and executive coach Maybush giving us confidence to change our mind. So once you've made that big decision, the question is, is it okay to change your mind? And the answer is, sometimes you have to change your mind, otherwise you're going to drive the company into the wrong place. And this goes back to Economics 101. That was the degree I had, Economics. And there is this, this concept called the fallacy of sunk costs, which is that all the costs that you incurred prior to this very moment are irrelevant when you're making a decision, because those costs are sunk already spent water under the bridge. The only thing that matters is what happens from where you are now forward. So in making those decisions, make sure you don't fall into the fallacy of sunk costs and you're only looking from where we are now forward. And by the way, that's why my father always said to me, May, that's why the eyes are in the front of the head. <laughs> you always want to be looking forward, not backward. And one of the other things that keeps us from changing our decision is 
this sense of, ooh, am I gonna look dumb? Because I just made a big thing out of making the decision that we made six months ago. The way to get yourself out of that one is to say, hey, we have new information. We're always making the best possible decision with the information we have at hand. But three months have passed, six months have passed, a year has passed, even a week has passed or a day has passed and we now have new information. And now this other way is gonna be the best way. So when you're making decisions, don't fall into the trap of sunk costs and don't fall into the trap of thinking you can't change your mind. You're not changing your mind, you're acting on new information. Again, that's so inspiring to think that we can make a new decision based on the new information and context of today. And that may be very different to what we knew last week when we made the last decision. So let's play hopscotch. Let's keep moving. Let's change feet. Let's change direction. Let's keep turning. But let's keep moving forward. If we need to go backwards and change direction, that's fine. It's where we end up that counts, not where we are today. Another way to reframe this is to think about how many decisions you'll need to make in the next 12 months. Whichever way you define decisions, it's going to be in the hundreds or even the thousands. So do you really expect that you're not going to want to change your mind on any of those decisions when new information presents itself? It feels like we need to get used to making decisions in this ambiguity and actually changing our mind could give us the confidence to be more agile and make those decisions with more confidence and more commitment along the way. It's also worth us touching on the decision-making model from US military strategist and Air Force Colonel John Boyd, who came up with this experience as a fighter pilot in the Korean War. Boyd developed his model of the OODA loop, which is double O-D-A. And this acronym stood for the four stages of rapid decision-making that was needed in this dynamic aerial combat of the fighter pilots. So first comes observe, to take in the latest information from around us in the environment. Then we need to orient, which is applying all of the overall context to what we're trying to achieve. So that could be our strategy, our mission or our values. Then we need to decide, which is about weighing up the options. Maybe it's staying on course, maybe it's firing, or maybe it's pulling away. And then we need to act. So 100% focus moves on to execution. So there's no distraction, no doubt. We just commit to the decision before opening up again and then starting to observe, going back to that first O of the OODA loop and going back to observation so that we can see what happened when we made our decision and then we can orient ourselves based on the, the information that's in front of us again. So this is a key part of the success that Boyd and other fighter pilots he trained had. But I think it's relevant for us today. While we might not be in a dogfight with the enemy above enemy territory, it certainly feels like a high stakes environment with a high degree of uncertainty. So getting into this courageous zone of getting out there and making nimble decisions to move forward sounds an exciting option compared to the inertia and fear of not even getting into the plane to make a decision in the first place. So our sixth star with advice for decision making is Gary Kirsten, the South African cricketer who's one of the most respected cricket coaches in the world. 
Gary not only coached his native country of South Africa, but he also won the World Cup with India. During that time, he had a chance to build some incredibly strong relationships with some of the biggest icons in the game, including Sachin Tendulkar. When I was searching through our video library for insights on today's theme of decision-making, Gary's point seemed a great way to wrap things up. Is learning a, an important component? You know, I, again, I refer back to one of the greatest cricketers I've ever worked with, Sachin Tendulkar, and, the, and the, you know, the bottom line to me, after 24 years of international cricket, he never stopped asking questions. He never stopped wanting to learn about his game. And for me, that's the ultimate. And I think we all need to understand that... Uh, we're going to make mistakes. We're not going to get it right. I don't believe people are measured by the mistakes they made. Because um, I think you can get over a mistake and once you learn from it, you can move on. I think, uh, and I, and I, I think it's, for me, it's been very important that I continue learning it. I continue understanding and I embrace it. And I, I know there are other ways to do things. Does it fit into my way? you know, into my coaching philosophies. I want to look at other ways of doing things. I want to understand it. I, I continue to make, make mistakes. I haven't had a long international coaching career, so I continue to make errors. You know, I reflect back on my time with the Proteas and think, you know, you know, there's certain things I would, have, I would do differently if I had it over again. But it is what it is in that moment, and you've got to make a decision. And I believe as a leader that that's important. You have to make a decision. And I don't believe you judge by your mistakes. You judge by making a decision. Can you make a call for us as a group of people to take us forward? Um, whether it's right or wrong, you know, hopefully if you're a good leader, you're going to get more right than, than wrong. So even the best players, coaches, executives in the world are making decisions and get them wrong. With hindsight, we're able to look back and say, well, that was a poor decision. But the key is that our life isn't static and looking backwards. We need to stand with the decision that's in front of us. And it might feel like a cliff edge, but it isn't. We'll make the decision, we'll scramble down the rock face, and we might have a few speed wobbles as things start to pan out. We might even face plant at the bottom. But we'll always be able to dust ourselves down, learn from the result of our decision, and then that feeds into our experience and that algorithm that's helping us to make better decisions about relationships, money, career, lifestyle, your business in the future. So we should always think that as long as we're trying to make our decisions with a sort of an ethical lens and we're not trying to hurt anyone um, and we've got the courage then to make those decisions in line with our goals and strategies, then you either get it right or you learn. There's lots more we could cover on decision making, but I really hope you found today's insights useful for your current context. To recap, here's what we've covered with our six star decisions. Firstly, we heard about the speed of our instincts, which is great when time is short, but we need to make sure we're reflecting on our past decisions and we're also broadening out those set of experiences and input to make sure we reduce our subconscious bias. The second point was from Major General Andrew Sharp, who said that even the alpha male in a hierarchical system says it's good to have your decision-making challenged while you're building your case. More cognitive diversity will help us to reflect on that decision from different perspectives, and that will give you the confidence when you actually commit to the decision and move forward. We heard about the role of data being absolutely pivotal to move away from that irrational and emotional side and to give us some 
uh, objective evidence to be able to move forward. And that was so instrumental with Paul McGinley's success in the Ryder Cup. Then we heard about maximising our decisions might be okay for the biggest decisions that we've got lots of time for, but we might also need to stop procrastinating by using that new technique of satisficing, picking those one or two key criteria that are going to be so important to the decision and going on that, moving forward more quickly. We also heard that it's okay to change your mind. Forget the sunk cost of what you've invested emotionally, financially up to this point. Many businesses are having to pivot and many people are having to change their careers. So forget all of that. Let's just take the new information for what we have today and make a decision from this point. When change is needed, let's make it okay to change our mind. And then finally, we got that solid advice from Gary Kirsten. Somebody's got to make a decision for us. So let's be the leader that does that with care and compassion within an ethical framework. And we might still get it wrong, but we'll learn and we'll move forward and we'll be wiser for it. So there's your game plan for high performance decisions. And the only decision you need to make now is whether you're going to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or you're going to come over to sportingedge.com forward slash membership and register for our new members club. I'll be in touch with all those of you who register and I'll offer you a special founder members rate. We've got some amazing content in the platform and we'll be introducing new experts every few weeks. And I'll also be available to answer your questions directly. So I look forward to welcoming you in. So that's it for today. Go and make some of those decisions you've been sitting on for a while and we'll see you next time. Good luck. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Mind of Champions. Connect with Jeremy's LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram links in today's show notes to receive the latest insights from his work. If you'd like to get access to Sporting Edge's digital library or book Jeremy for a conference speech or webinar, then please visit www.sportingedge.com or email hello at sportingedge.com.